1: Hoping for good news in the labor talks, but staying in the moment as yeah, the only real alternative. That's where we are, podcast faithful. What do the deep thinkers say these days? We are standing in our truth. Ah, without baseball, I'm watching so much Dorsey and Stacey on TLC, and that's what those bizarre women keep saying. So now I'm saying it too. Standing in your truth. If it was a drinking game, I'd have blacked out by background Valentine's Day. But the phrase means basically play the ball where it lies, right? Live your own unique and authentic life. Enjoy the best you can no matter what else is happening all around you. Or in this case, what is not happening all around you. Let's talk some pitchers and catchers, even though they've been unable to report. Unfortunately,
0: that's in the morning.
1: Mets in the morning oh yeah Mets in the morning gonna tell you what the Mets are doing a while coffee is brewing now here's Josh Lewin now. welcome bienvenidos this is Mets in the morning I am Josh Lewin and as the players and owners continue to haggle and we all continue to be super itchy about getting things going again, let's control what we can control here and just talk a little baseball. Jeremy Hefner, Mets' esteemed pitching coach, is down in Fort St. Lucie working with some of the young arms. We'll check in with him, talk a little general coaching philosophy. We'll also look wistfully forward to that last Saturday in August when the Mets are resurrecting Old Timers Day. We have a couple of participants lined up for you to hear. And you might remember a couple podcasts ago, we heard Cliff Floyd and Robin Ventura and Daniel Murphy weighing in. Yeah, Daniel Murphy is an old timer. You want to feel older than that? Andrew Jones' son is being talked about as a possible number one pick in this year's June draft. Al Leiter's son may pitch for the Texas Rangers this year. Not to get all Ken Burns on you here, but time really does march on. Am I right? Maybe that's what we need to get through this delayed spring training right now. A 10-part docuseries on pine tar or the, the history of batting cages or actual baseballs. Here, I'll give you 45 seconds of a Ken Burns documentary. The ball has been forever known as the old horse hide, but really what you're looking at is leather. And the supplier of this leather since 1961, the Tennessee Tanning Company in Tullahoma, Tennessee. The leather from Tennessee goes to the Rawlings factory down in Costa Rica. And it's there the process really begins. You know, 1107 feet of yarn is involved in the making of just a single baseball and 108 stitches bring it all together. Once the umpires rub the baseballs down with Lena Blackburn's rubbing mud, those balls are ready to go. And it's funny, originally American League balls were stitched with red and blue thread, National League with red and black, but now the two leagues use a common thread, something the sport is looking for right now. There, wanna go stick something sharp in your eyeball now like I do? Uh, All right, so what do you guys want to do first? Do you want to hear from Hefner or hear from the old-timers? I am holding in my hand a genuine American quarter, minted and pressed in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Heads it's Hefner, tails is old-timers. Jeremy Hefner returns for his second season as pitching coach for the Mets. Sporkle quiz, how many Mets pitching coaches can you name? Before Hefner, I'm scrolling backwards, you Ready? Dave Island, with an assist from Phil Regan, Dan Warthen for a full nine years, before that Rick Peterson for five, Vern Rule for one, Charlie Huff, Dave Wallace, Bob Apodaca, Greg Pavlik, Mel Stottlemyre, Bill Monboquet, Bob Gibson for a short time. Yeah, that actually happened after Rube Walker, who had, had the job for 13 years, Harvey Haddix, Mel Harder, Red Ruffing. 23 All-Star Game appearances from that trio right there. And finally, for a year in 1963, this is the one I never would have gotten without looking it up, Ernie White in 1963. Uh, He was an old Boston Braves pitcher, the team of Spawn and Sane and Pray for Rain. Matter of fact, he was part of the group that everyone apparently wanted to ruin its shoes in by standing in a thunderstorm. So Jeremy Hefner is the guy now. He's great people. Uh, Pitched for the Mets, you may recall, in 2012 and part of 13. Was 8-15 at about a a 4.5 ERA. Hit a home run in his first ever start, which was cool. Against Officer Joe Blanton, as how I used to call him on the radio. Won that game, too. Backed by a pinch hit two-run homer from Scott Harrison. Now, 10 years later, he is the pitching coach. And let's remember, although he's got a terrific top of the rotation on paper... Roster churn is such a thing these days. You note the change over the past few decades in the average number of pitchers used per season by a team. 1991, 18 pitchers on a roster for the whole year. 10 years after that, it was 20. Go to 2011, it was 22. By 2021, last year, 30 pitchers was the average. As recently as 1977, Earl Weaver got by with an eight-man pitching staff in Baltimore. He had Jim Palmer, Mike Flanagan, Scotty McGregor, Rudy May, Ross Grimsley, Dennis and Tippy Martinez, and Dick Drago. So Earl had eight pinch hitters available every night in a league that had the DH. A couple years after that, the Orioles won the AL pennant, and they used 12 pitchers for the entire season. Two of them pitched a combined two-and-two-thirds innings. A lefty, Jeff Renier, a young righty named John Flynn, each got an inning or two the final weekend of the regular season coming up from AAA. So really, it was only 10 pitchers used all year. The Mets last season used 20 pitchers in April. So these days, until Major League Baseball adopts the use of cyborgs or something, Jeremy Hefner has to be ready to mix and match like a wizard. That's part of our chat with Jeremy from last week, exploring what it takes to do his job and do it well, starting with what it's like to be down in Port St.
0: Lucie with no big leaguers currently around. We still have um, lots of guys in our organization that um, I'm able to impact, and um, those being coaches and other staff members and then some of our other players. And so that's been a lot of my time over the last two months is um, engaging with them and and trying to uh, figure out um, you know, who's, who's on the horizon, um, and how can I, how can I help? How can I, how can I serve them? How can I serve the, the uh, um affiliate coaches? Um, how can we make their lives easier? Um, because if we make their lives easier, then we're probably going to make the players lives easier. We're probably going to get better outcomes and, and ultimately win ballgames. So yeah, that's been, that's been the focus, uh, for the off season outside of trying to soak up every moment I can with my family.
1: You make a great point. and by the way, I want to get back to your family in a second, which is such a great, beautiful family. But uh, I think the basic thought of a lot of us is that, okay, you know whoever your twelve or thirteen guys are on a big league day, those are your guys' game set match. But during the course of a season, you might be coaching forty, fifty different guys. I mean, if everything breaks incorrectly, right? I mean, so you got to be ready to to rock with whoever.
0: no doubt. no doubt. and and some of those are. Some of those are guys currently already in our organization. Some of them are minor league free agents. Some Maybe we get on the waiver wire. And so um, being able to understand, I think, how the game's you know—the always evolving, right? Evolving. And so you have guys that are coming out of the draft. You're understanding how they're learning and growing. And then guys that may have been in pro ball for a few years, but they're trying to break through. What do they need to do? And then obviously you have guys maybe on the back end of their career try signing minor league free agent deals and how they're improving, how they're trying to get better. Um, so yeah, that's been the focus right now
1: in your own experience. And I kind of want to bracket it because you're coming up with the Padres as a guy who starts in the minors. And I'm sure you're thinking, how do I get on the radar of the big league coach? How does Darren Ballsley fall in love with me? (laughs) Then on the other side of it, you know, you're waved by the Mets. You, you move on, you, you're trying to come back with the Cardinals. You get an invite to spring training, and now you're trying to get to know, who's there in St. Louis. So from a player's perspective, how much did you appreciate somebody who reached out to you in that situation?
0: It's everything, man. Um, the relationship, um, I I don't like to think of myself in that type of, uh, way, but I I do exactly what you just said. Like I I take myself back to, you know, Oh, eight, um, Jeremy, when I was, you know, I was fortunate enough to be minor league pitcher of the year, and I found myself in the off season in San Diego, and I was at a table with Chris Young and uh, Bud Black is giving a, um, you know, he's giving a presentation, and um, I'm like, what am I doing here? And those guys all came and said hi to me, and that meant a lot to me. And then, just like you said, as as I matriculated through the minor leagues and through throughout my career, just just the, even the small nudges, like the hey, how's it going. Um, it doesn't even have to be like this dynamic conversation. It's got to be groundbreaking and it's got to be three hours long. No, uh, it's sometimes just the subtle, Hey, how's it going? Um, meant the most just because you want to be seen, right? Like you're putting in all this work, all this time to try to realize your goals. And the person that is, um, doesn't have like ownership over you, but has some say in like your career that that person would reach out and say, Hey, or or watch a video that you sent or something like that's, that's pretty special. And so um, I always try to keep that on the back of my mind, even when things get really busy.
1: So what is your recon half in terms of getting to know, for example, some guy in single A or double A, do you read up on him? Are you watching video? Is it a 50, 50 split of both those things? Or are you talking to people that might know him? How do you find
0: out about a guy? Really? Yeah. So um, we have really good people, uh, really good affiliate coaches, really good coordinators, um, on the, on the pitching side that are intertwined with these guys. And so it's a, has a lot more to do getting the background, um, from them from on the personality standpoint and, the, and, you know, what would be appropriate, what would be the most meaningful thing for, for him? Cause some guys want that they want that hour long conversation. They want to deep dive into the numbers and stuff like that. And there are other guys that don't. And so I certainly don't want to waste anyone's time and I want it to be impactful. So it's a lot of that. It's a lot of talking to our affiliate coaches or our coordinators. And then, um, and then trying to get my own view, right. Looking at the data, looking at the video, um, trying to understand um, this guy's journey and being careful not to just watch one game and casting the mold, but rather, Um, try to get a few different points along his journey to see kind of how his mechanics have evolved or his pitching pitching has evolved as a whole.
1: seems too like one of the major tent poles now in coaching in general, I would say this is true in any sport, is realizing that different guys learn in different ways, right? And I'm sure that's true with your kids. Some of them, uh, they're good auditory Absorbers. Some need to see it. Some want to read about it. Do you approach it that way
0: with all of these pictures too? No doubt. No doubt. It's similar to a classroom, right? Or a teacher has to, um, you know, provide different avenues for the students to learn. So in a lot of the ways, it's similar. And you mentioned the, the parenting component. Like, that's absolutely true. Um, or at least that's been my experience. I shouldn't say absolutely. It's been my experience for sure. Um, yeah. And so that's our job right that's our job to to use bucks terms like make our make our um our players path easier um and so that they have less things to worry about that don't really matter that don't lead to winning they can focus on the things that that lead to winning and they can put all their energy and all their time into those things and not have to worry about all this other stuff that's going on around them unless they choose to
1: right on so, hey, you, you brought up parenting, and it's four kids now. And I knew you, you had a son, Jace, a daughter, Jaylee, and that's kind of where you and I left off when you were with the the Mets. And I know your family has grown since then. Tell me about the uh, the Hefner life right now.
0: Yeah, so in addition to Jace, who's in fifth grade, Jaylee's in third, Lucy is in first, and then we have a pre-K, or I guess she's in K3, she has two years of pre-K to do uh, Lexi. Um, so a boy and three girls. So it's busy time. Um, my wife is a saint. I wouldn't be able to do any of this without her. She enables me to you know, travel all over the country and, but they also get to come with me too sometimes and participate and all that kind of stuff too. So they're afforded that, um, that blessing as well. But, um, I got the opportunity to coach my son's fifth grade basketball team this off season, which was wow. so much fun. Um, you know, losing your voice every Saturday is, um, uh, is a good thing, I guess. (laughs) Um, but it was a lot of fun. So he's obviously getting closer to middle school. So my opportunities to coach him, um, are going to be dwindling away. So trying to take advantage of that opportunity. And then, yeah, so it was a lot of off season baseball practices and in season basketball games. Um, and then Lucy, my middle daughter, um, does tumbling. And so we traveled to several places to um, to watch her tumble. And then Lexi's just a party. She's on her um, she's on her own vibe on her own channel, and she's along for the ride.
1: I, I'm fascinated by the, the coaching of fifth grade basketball and the lessons that you probably take from that. I would think ninety percent of them might be about patience. Uh, I mean, do you look at it just in general, whether it's coaching young kids in basketball or waiting in line? Uh, somewhere you don't want to be are you one of those people jeremy that says i can learn from anywhere
0: i am from anybody yeah and and to to layer on top of that like i'm purposeful in trying to expose myself to little league or youth sports during the off season um because if you can't explain it to an 11 year old then you probably don't fully understand it and so even with my son's baseball team or or going and talking to you know, another team or whatever, like if, if I can't explain this biomechanical thought um, in ways that a nine-year-old um, can understand, then I, I probably don't understand it. So it, it illuminates my holes and it illuminates my bias and um, helps me relate to every player that I may come in in contact because we mentioned earlier about Guys learning in different ways. Some guys want to go on that deep dive and they want the intellectual academic definitions Mm -hmm. of all this stuff. And there's other guys that care less Mm -hmm. and they just it's more art to them. Right. It's the art of pitching as opposed to the other the other way. So for me to do my job and for us to for me to to do for me to do my job and set our players up. To be the best that they can be is i gotta be i gotta have a wide range of abilities and so i want to make sure that those things are, are sharpened in the same way that our players should be working out and eating right and sleeping and doing their throwing programs and stuff like that
1: one more for you jeremy on the coaching front you're going to be with uh, hopefully in lockstep uh, a bullpen coach this year and craig bjornson who and i say this so affectionately is a bit of a wackaloon uh, and, and I love, I love Craig Bjorns and got to know him in Boston a bit. I'm wondering how much you know of him, how much you knew of him and, and what is it that relationship supposed to be between a bullpen coach? I mean, who's out there with all the bullpen guys, right? I mean, while you can't be during a game, how important is it for you guys
0: to, to have that kind of synergy? Yeah. Um, so CB and I have a mutual friend and Brent Strong who's a um, long time Astros pitching coach now he's in, he's in Arizona. Um, I've looked up to Stromi for, for a while. I've um, indirectly and directly have learned from him for a while now. And so um, I called him and asked him if he had any, any guys, any, any names he wanted to throw in the hat. And, and CB was, was the guy he threw in and um, you know, CB has won two world series uh, one with Boston, one with Houston Um, He's been around some high-level players, um, future Hall of Fame players. He's been a part of a system that's developed pitching at a high level, both in Houston and Boston. And so he brings um, a wide range of um, expertise and experience. Um, He speaks Spanish. Um, I believe, hopefully, I'm not misspeaking for CB, but his father is Norwegian or somewhere up there. That's where he gets to be from. And then his mom is uh, Mexican descent. And so, and he grew up in a Mexican um, neighborhood. So he has that, that Spanish um, background to help us um, with, with those guys that maybe aren't as comfortable just speaking English. So, um, he brings, he brings a lot to, to the table and, um, um, we've already, we've already got the ball rolling in a lot of ways, but I'm just to to get in person with them and, and get going here. And I think to answer the second question about the bullpen coach in general, like it's a, um, for me, it's a con and, and the same thing could be said about any coach, but like, I think it's content or context specific. So like, Given your players on your roster, or at least the players you hope to be on your roster, what type of person would best fit, right? Um, That's what you're trying to do during any type of hiring process. And I think um, given all the things that I mentioned earlier, like CB fits that mold. um, And then like they're on an island, right? So in a lot of ways, um, they can kind of do whatever they want um so there's there's a certain level of trust that buck has to have with that individual um that i have to have with that individual and that trust is going to be developed very quickly because you know you know hopefully the season starts very soon
1: Yeah, thanks so much to the native oklahoman jeremy hefner and now as promised we pivot to a little more talk about the old timers game slated for august 27th at city field I haven't heard that there's going to be any particular theme to this one. Probably not a necessary element, since just having an old-timers game hasn't happened with the Mets since the uh, the hot summer movie was Forrest Gump. But you go back to 1993, for example, the Mets did theme it out to celebrate t- the 20th anniversary of the 1973 World Series. So they invited some of the old Oakland A's as well as the Mets. Howard Johnson was there, and he remembers.
2: Well, I grew up I grew up in in uh, west coast of Florida in Clearwater, but I was always an A's fan as a kid because that's when they were great, you know. So I got to see some players that I idolized when I was a kid. And uh, I, I love looking at, I love watching old video, old games from the 70s, you know, even in the 60s, you know, color TV and everything started to come around. So there was, a lot of, there was a lot of things going on baseball-wise it was a much it was a much cleaner game to watch, like on especially on television. Um, now nowadays it's kind of broken up a little bit, but um, yeah, I just remember seeing all those players out there, and just it just makes you think like when you were a kid.
1: So great to hear Howard Johnson's voice and to know that his grandson Tanner is doing better. Tanner was in bad shape for a while because of an accident at his home several months ago, but things are looking up. Howard Johnson, by the way, was a guy with a 30-30 season and a 30-40 season for the Mets, if you don't remember. He was asked if he thinks those kinds of seasons will ever make a comeback.
2: Absolutely, could come back. And, and the way I always felt was, you know, base stealing was an act of will. And it takes a lot of, uh, it's difficult. You know, there's a lot, of, lot that goes into it. It's not just being able to run. Um, I never was the fastest guy, but I love stealing bases. And my focus almost always was to get on base and try to steal. And I had that, I had that in me. I wanted to be, be that kind of a player that, if, if uh, somebody walked me that I could I could try to steal and, and be in scoring position
1: uh, also on that zoom call last week borderline hall of fame guy Billy Wagner and I've made the case for Billy's candidacy before no need to roll through his resume all over again other than to remind you he allowed on average not even six hits per nine innings in the majors but you do play the what if game with Billy what if he would never had that torn UCL midway through his Mets career
2: You know what? I I don't know really how to answer that because I I hate to think that I would be talking about myself. Um, You know, I like playing the game and trying to be the best I could and doing the job the best I could for my team to win.
1: As for Shea Stadium memories, of which there are many, here's a little more from the native of Marion, Virginia, Billy Wagner.
2: I, I think, you know, in that 06 I don't know if I've ever been a part of a of a of that passion of a crowd who, when when you walked onto the field, I mean, they they loved every bit about you, and I mean they wanted nothing but success, and I mean the 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 stadium rocking, the planes going over, the uh, I mean there was nothing like Shea Stadium.
1: Always an easy guy to root for, Billy Wagner, now coaching back in his home state. And what a long way he's come uh, before circling back to his roots there. Billy's parents had divorced when he was five years old, and at that time, those parents were 21 and 23. Billy and his younger sister had to spend basically 10 years just bouncing around, various combinations of step-parents and grandparents, uh, relying on food stamps Billy has said that his typical breakfast for a long time was a few crackers with peanut butter and a glass of water. So uh, I've, I've always admired Billy for how he's kind of come through all that. Also on that Zoom call, by the way, original Met Ken McKenzie, who is now 87 years old, Ron Darling's college coach at Yale. McKenzie had played for Yale himself, and famously, he was the only 1962 Met that had a winning record. He was 5-4. and four. The rest of the team was... 35 and 116. Casey Stengel called him the lowest paid member of Yale's class of 56. And the old professor was probably right. So before we go away for a week, hopefully less if the CBA gets done, uh, we do have some other off-the-field notes from this past week after this.
0: Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help.
1: So Buck Showalter, hard at work with the non-40-man roster minor league guys down in Port St. Lucie, told reporters a couple of days ago he's having trouble finding a house in the tri-state area. Sellers Market, he accurately reports. But uh, Buck says he will show up wherever his wife Angela tells him. Quote, that's why I've been married for 38 years. And I get it. Good work there, Buck. I was married for 20 years myself, and then just got really tired of finishing my own sentences. Uh, There was a thought-provoking story I wanted to share as well from a guy named James Fegan from The Athletic. The ABS, the Automated Ball and Strike System, or robot umps if you prefer, it's moving from just the Atlantic League to a bunch of the AAA parks for this coming season. And the long-term intent seems pretty obvious. They're exposing all this to AAA players with the expectation that 12, maybe 24 months from now, Uh, This is what's happening in the big leagues. So we could be approaching a time where an elite pitch-framing catcher really isn't a need anymore, which means those guys better start working on their hitting instead and the simple act of just calling a good game and maybe throwing out a runner now and then. Pitch-framing for now is a really big deal. There's research that indicates there's probably 30 pitches in an average game where a catcher can really influence if it's a ball or a strike. But now the catching position might become less of that Uh, More of a place where teams just look to jam in an impact bat, provided the guy has a a decent throwing arm and the willingness to learn how to relay and execute a game plan. And maybe what develops, according to this article, is a game within the game for catchers who make an effort to deceive hitters with their setup locations. That could be a a new thing since uh, they'll no longer be punished for reaching across the zone here if, if there are robot umps coming in. Point is, uh, baseball's constantly evolving. And whether it's an increased emphasis on transfers and footwork or a quick disappearance here of the one-knee-catching thing for framing the low strikes, anyone who's played the game long enough to reach the majors knows you got to uh, kind of survive or perish. you got to roll with things and make adjustments. Kind of like we all adjust to still no spring training, but we find a way to entertain you nonetheless, right? Thank God we have this wonderful house band On keyboards, Buzz Capra. Snapping to bass is Hubie Brooks. The horn section, the lefty Garrett Olson. And on drums, Toby Borland. This is Josh Lewin looking so forward to resurrecting the daily model here for you. We'll be doing that just as soon as we hear that a CBA is done. We're done for now. Have yourself a wonderful day.